With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. This is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. Now, first of all, welcome to 2017. I am just so excited about 2017, really looking forward to really communicating more and more clearly to an even wider audience. And as many of you know, uh, I started this radio show because I was really concerned about the 880,000 Americans every year that are killed as a result of their medical therapy. And so I asked myself, why would anyone continue to make appointments with doctors or pay insurance premiums or even show up at a hospital or submit to a diagnostic test for that matter? Why? And I said to myself, maybe... They have not read the morning report. Yes, the morning report. What is the morning report? Well, those of you in law enforcement, you're used to something called roll call, where they do roll call and they give you information for the day, things maybe you should look out for or be aware of. Well, in medicine, we have the morning report. Now, every hospital uh, in the morning, very early, usually have morning, um, it's called grand rounds. But really, it's a meeting of the doctors, and they talk about important things. Since the rise of the Internet, this has morphed, in other words, it's changed into a morning report where uh, it's online news feed, and they actually issue a morning report about important um, events or things in medicine that uh, they feel are important that every doctor should know about. And uh, we have Dr. Uh, Casaboy, a practicing internist and medical editor. And this is her weekly brief on recent medical news and findings. And this is, you know, these, these are many morning reports. We're going to go through as many of these morning reports as we have time for. And this is not me. Like I said, I don't make accusations, but only take confessions. So this is the morning report as presented by the medical industrial complex itself on its own behalf. So this is a sympathetic view. In other words, this is the best possible scenario, the totally varnished, biased in favor of the medical industrial complex version. So this is, this is what I'm sharing with you. I'm sharing with you information produced and provided by the medical industrial complex itself to physicians. And 
Uh, no places that say, hang up that stethoscope, you're killing people. No, no. No places that say, for Christ's sake, review all your old charts and issue refunds. No, no, none of that. But let's see what it does say. So this is the morning report, and let's give a date on this, see if we can get a date on this. This is December 9th, 2016, so this is pretty recent. And uh, the first topic is low-dose aspirin, cardiovascular disease, let's put that in English, this is heart disease like heart attack and stroke, and diabetes. All right, so these are three things, low-dose aspirin, probably you already have images of something doctors recommend to help you get better. Heart disease, you probably have an image in your mind. Oh, my God, a terrible thing. I'd like to avoid it. And diabetes probably conjures up similar images. Okay. She says, our first report confirms earlier findings that low-dose aspirin does not prevent heart attacks or stroke in patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, those of you out there who are diabetic, uh, probably recall that a year or two ago your doctor did recommend an aspirin a day. And this new data comes from long-term research in Japan. So in other words, they studied people over a period of years and found that this therapy was totally ineffective. In other words, it was not helpful. So if it wasn't helpful, then what was it? We know for a fact that even low-dose aspirin increases the risk of kidney failure even low-dose aspirin increases the risk of bleeding to death. You mean patients were taking on that risk with no benefit. Okay. So, they go on to say, this study involved more than 2,500 patients with type 2 diabetes who were randomly assigned to low-dose aspirin or no aspirin. The initial findings at about four years showed no effect of aspirin on sudden death, heart disease, stroke, or peripheral artery disease. This is shocking. I mean, they even reached for benefits. Usually, you know, okay, aspirin helps with uh, heart disease or stroke. They said, okay, we don't see any difference in heart disease or stroke. Let's go back through the data and see if we can't measure an improvement in sudden death or maybe peripheral artery disease. So it was of no benefit. The research then followed the cohort for 10 Years, 10 more years, hoping to find benefit, during which aspirin therapy was decided by the treating doctor. In other words, we know this stuff is useless, but let's just say, let the doctor decide if he wants to give it or not give it. I mean, after all, it's his prerogative, right? Not the patient, the doctor's, okay? And the findings were essentially the same. Aspirin did not prevent cardiovascular events. So the researchers think the negative aspirin results in this study versus past research may be due to an increased use of statins now. So they're going to excuse the fact that the aspirin just basically didn't work. In Europe, the guidelines already do not recommend aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular events in patients with type 2 diabetes, except in high-risk cases. It may be time for the American guidelines to be revised and changed. In other words, it might be time to change the guidelines. Well, then again, it might not. So we have a therapy proven to be totally useless, of no benefit, not effective, and she didn't mention harmful, but we know that it's harmful. And sound the alarm. Oh, my God, it's terrible. It's harming people. Let's stop it right now. Nope, 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 nope. It may be time, and then again, it may not be time for the American guidelines to be revisited or changed. So if the American guidelines have not changed, what does it say to the American doctor reading this? Oh, okay, well, I'll just keep recommending aspirin until they tell me not to. Yes. Another few hundred or few thousand patients a year bite the dust. And this is how it's so insidious, just, just, just a slow kill. A few here, a few there, and uh, you know, people just let it slide, attribute it to other things. So here, what's our next piece of information? Proton pump inhibitors and stroke. Okay, so you need to know what a proton pump inhibitor is. In your stomach is a proton pump, and this pump makes acid, and this acid digests your food. Right, so you need a proton pump. It was put in your stomach for a reason, because you need acid to digest your food. Gotcha. So doctors have these pumps, these pills rather, that block your pump from doing its job. They're called proton pump inhibitors. So these 
these pills actually stop and arrest your digestion. Um, and, of course, at the same time, they relieve indigestion. So they relieve the symptoms of pain in your upper stomach, but they do this by stopping you from digesting your food. Okay. Uh, these pills, uh, first dubbed little uh, purple pill, um, like uh, Nexium is one example of one. Prilosec is another example. Uh, now there are many of them. However... Uh, this is the latest information. Again, morning report, headline, in your doctor's inbox, and um, this is the news. Danish researchers have found an association between the use of proton pump inhibitors and risk for first-time stroke. What? In other words, let's put this in English. People with low risk of stroke, ordinary people, perfectly healthy, Take a proton pump inhibitor, and boom, they have a stroke. Another group of people, perfectly healthy, or not, maybe they have indigestion, don't take a proton pump inhibitor, and they have less incidence of stroke. Okay, so there are people literally being paralyzed because they took a proton pump inhibitor. All right, so let's see what the morning report says about this. I mean, you'd think if you're engaging in a practice that is causing people great disability, paralyzing half their body, increasing their chances of death, killing them perhaps, that this might be a reason to sound an alarm. You know, I mean, strokes, that's a serious thing. It's not trivial. But let's see what, what is, uh, what's recommended here. Preclinical studies have suggested a biological basis for this finding. In other words, Knowing what we know about proton pump inhibitors, there's actually a reason to think that they might cause this. Proton pump inhibitors reduce the production of nitric oxide, resulting in endothelial dysfunction. Okay, let's give you the English translation. Is that this medication causes the lining of blood vessels to malfunction, thus possibly causing them to constrict, become narrow, and lessen the flow of blood to, you got it, the brain. So, and observational studies already show a link between proton pump inhibitors and heart disease. So heart disease, again, it's a euphemism for heart attack, interruption of blood vessel to the heart, blood supply to the heart. So if the blood vessel is located in the heart and it malfunctions and closes off the blood supply to the heart, we call it a heart attack. Identical process happens in a blood vessel in the brain, and we call it a stroke. Now, why the neurologist would handle strokes and the cardiologist would handle a heart, heart attack when it's exactly the same biological process, I leave to your imagination. But this is what we are left with. But this was the first study to link proton pump inhibitors with the stroke. So even though we had reason to believe it was the case, even though observational studies showed a link, uh, we now have a scientific study <coughs> showing the link. And the risk is dose-dependent. In other words, the more proton pump inhibitors you take, the higher your risk of having a stroke. Of interest, there was not an increase of risk for stroke with the H2 blocker class of drugs. This is a class of drugs that blocks the histamine 2 receptors in the stomach as opposed to the proton pump receptors in the stomach. Okay. So obviously, you wouldn't have a similar risk with a different drug that works on different mechanisms, so how would that be really of any interest at all? The study included almost a quarter of a million patients. That would be 250,000 patients. And looked at four of the most popular proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, pentoprazole, lansoprazole, and esomeprazole. I'm very proud that I pronounced those properly. Some of which are available over the counter. So they looked at all four of these. Although the stroke incidence rate was higher in people who took these drugs, this observational study does not prove causation. Patients who have a clear indication for this drug should continue their medication. Okay, so we've determined that if you're taking this medicine, proton pump inhibitor, you have an increased risk of stroke. And your increased risk of stroke is proportional to how much of this medicine you take. Nevertheless, you should not stop taking your medicine, and of course, doctors should not stop prescribing it. 
Wow. Now, to be even more, put a finer point on this, as my mother would say, uh, mom would say, well, not to put too fine a point on this, as she would pre, uh, repeat herself or emphasize her point. Um, these proton pump inhibitors are being used to treat a condition in digestion which is not deadly. Now, using a deadly drug to treat a non-deadly illness is the underlying practice and philosophy that facilitates and expedites the killing of 880,000 Americans every year. Clearly, if you take a deadly drug, a drug that will kill a certain percentage of those who take it, no matter how low that percentage is, and administer the drug for a condition that is not deadly, you are necessarily going to increase the overall death in the population, and for certain sure, you are going to kill some people. And so, you know, we have diseases like um, Zika, where we're not really sure uh, if, it re- if it kills anybody. We're not really sure if it exists. Uh, you know, the test is kind of vague. The number of folks killed, man, we don't really know. We're, we're trying to get estimates. And there's like, a, you know, a three-bell alarm going off. And we have a drug here, proton pump inhibitors, a class of drugs. We know they're killing people. Um, says so right here, you know, strokes, heart attacks, and doctors are told, ah, relax, relax, relax. People who need them, uh, you know, there's a reason to give this drug, you should give it. Reminds me of when I was in medical practice, and I've told this story before, but I was really stunned when this happened. Uh, an elderly lady came into the office requesting uh, that I refill basically four different narcotic prescriptions for her to take concurrently. I said to her, "Well, this is unsafe. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fill this prescription." She had a fit, and she went to the administration of the HMO where I was working part time. And the administrator actually called me and said, "We are hiring you to refill prescriptions. We expect you to refill these prescriptions." And uh, I just told him he'd have to get another doctor to do it. <laughs> I, just, I just wasn't gonna do it. That's all. Maybe she could come back another day or something. You know, if they wanted to fire me, take away, you know, dock me an hour's pay, whatever. I just wasn't going to fill the prescription. But um, this doctors are expected to respond to this kind of instruction. Well, you know, this, this drug is deadly and it's killing people and you're giving it for a harmless condition. But, you know, you, you keep giving this drug and by golly, don't you stop. Okay. So we have two instances. Giving aspirin causes harm, absolutely no benefit. Um, People are dying. Uh, proton pump inhibitors, a deadly drug for a non-deadly condition. Okay, so we've got we've told doctors kill people and kill more people. Okay, gotcha. Hey, part three. Here's the clincher. Psilocybin, uh, which is uh, basically uh, psychedelic mushrooms, and that I'm probably mispronouncing. It's a game changer for severe anxiety or depression. Okay, the psychoactive drug, psilocybin, is being hailed as a game changer. What is a game changer? I have no idea what a game changer is. Does that mean you get four fouls instead of five? How does it change a game? Which game does it change? So for late-stage cancer patients with depression and anxiety, you may have heard of it as the active ingredient in the recreational drug known as magic mushrooms. Whoa, back up, stop right now. How are we going to trust doctors to give advice about a friggin' recreational drug when they can't even handle the stuff that they're assigned, which is aspirin, heart disease, diabetes, and here, simple indigestion. Now we're going to let a doctor uh, take control over the recreational drugs people use? Let's read on. Psilocybin produces a mystical... Okay, mystical. This is not a scientific term. Mystical, altered state of consciousness. You would think they could articulate it better, but this is mystical. Altered state of consciousness that contributes to a positive mood, greater life satisfaction, and improved spiritual well-being. It is a serotonogenic hallucinogen, non-addictive, and has low toxicity. (laughs) Well, I guess doctors need something with low toxicity. I mean, if you can kill people over indigestion and giving an ineffective drug to treat a non-existent condition, 
I guess we better uh, assign doctors a drug that is uh, low toxicity. Now, I'd just like to mention, it might be low toxicity because doctors are not prescribing it. This is something to, be, to, to think about. So magic mushrooms, are, are, yeah, magic mushrooms are a recreational drug people have been using for a very long time, very safely. To introduce the doctor in the mix seems to me imprudent. So psilocybin produces a, a mystical altered state. Two separate studies showed that a single high dose had a rapid, clinically important, and long-lasting effect in 90% of patients, 80 to 90%. We'll give them credit for 90%. The fact that both studies yielded similar results has experts saying that the findings could open up a new era of drug treatment in psychiatry. Now, get this. We're using a single high dose of this substance for a condition, severe anxiety and depression, in a patient, a cancer patient. So this is not curing their cancer. And so we're taking a drug that is not in any way contributing to the longevity or improved health of the patient. We're now putting it in the hands of the doctors, and we're giving a single high dose, probably a higher dose than what the patient might have elected to take on their own. I think it's a reasonable guess. And so what can we guess? That this low-toxicity drug in the hands of doctors will probably become a real killer. And so this is going to open up a new era of drug treatment in psychiatry. While more studies are needed, this research brings hope that the hallucinogen may have applications for treating patients other than those suffering from cancer. Now, this is the ultimate in hubris, okay? So these doctors, you know, earlier in the morning report here have proven, the report has proven, that doctors are engaging in dangerous, deadly practices. They've announced it. And um, allowing doctors to treat in the first case, non-existent disease by giving aspirin to present, prevent a disease a person doesn't have is deadly. And in the second instance, allowing doctors to treat a non-deadly disease indigestion is deadly. We can only guess that allowing doctors to prescribe a harmless recreational drug will itself result in death. Okay, so that's one morning report. Again, like I say, uh, you have to basically... <laughs> not have uh, read the morning report in order to continue to uh, use these drugs. Okay. So here we are, continued rise in use of psychiatric drugs. Again, the morning report. We begin with word of unprecedented use of psychiatric drugs among adults in the United States. So it was like, the so researchers analyzed data from 2013 medical expenditure panel survey, which included information on the use of multiple classes of psychiatric meds. Just for your information, medical expenditure that re, you know you can read uh, insurance bills or insurance payment receipts. So obviously your use is being tracked by these insurers. But anyway, these records show that the use of multiple classes of psychiatric meds, and we doctors, by the way, are trained to prescribe one drug for um, psychiatric problems. If it doesn't work, guess what? Add another. If it doesn't work, add another, and so on. And this becomes a very dangerous mix. But let's see what they say. Approximately one in six adults reported taking one of these drugs with higher use in women and those over 60. Use was highest in white patients, just over double the reported use in black or Hispanic adults, and four times the use reported by Asians. In the large majority of these patients, over 84%, use was considered long-term in all drug classes. In other words, the doctor just put the person on the drug and said, don't worry, you're going to take this the rest of your life. In other words, I've just turned you into an addict. Thank you very much. I'll pay at the door and we'll see you every three months the rest of your life. Okay. So researchers warn that these statistics are red flags. There's been little research on the safety of these meds for extended periods of time. Little research? <laughs> when I was in medical practice, this was 1996. And I, I kid you not, I could not believe this. 
um, a drug rep came into my office to tell me there was this new antidepressant on the market, and I needed to start prescribing it. I said, well, sounds interesting. Tell me more. I mean, like, you know, studies, whatever. They studied this drug, and they got it approved by the FDA in a study of only seven patients lasting only six weeks. And of these seven patients, only four noted improvement. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. This study is just a little bit weak, don't you think? Oh, Dr. Daniels, blah, blah, blah. We've got a special dinner. It's later on this evening. You can even bring your kids. And we've got this expert. He's going to explain all about this awesome study. This is what your doctor is up against. They also caution that eight out of the ten most widely used medications have warnings about withdrawal or rebound symptoms. In other words, they're highly addictive. For, for doctor's solution, if the drug's addictive, oh, if it's addictive, well, just prescribe it for life, of course. And that way you just keep writing prescriptions, and the patient might be an addict, but they're not going to be robbing and stealing to pay for their habit because, after all, it's covered by insurance. And the doctor freely writes for it. This is the way things are explained to us in medical school, by the way. Both patients and physicians should consider periodic re-evaluation. And so what? You consider the re-evaluation, and what do you do? You can't stop the drug. The patient's hooked. You just create a dope dope addict. Does your patient continue to need psychiatric medication? These include multiple serotonin reuptake inhibitors, benzodiazepines, and hypnotics. Hypnotics are sleeping pills, and they're known to be very deadly. The full list can be found on our website. Okay, so with the rise in use of psychiatric drugs, these drugs are highly addictive. Um, doctors are prescribing SSRIs, which is serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors. Benzodiazepines read Valium. Hypnotics read sleeping pill like Ambien. And these are deadly combinations. So what they're saying is to the doctor, does your patient continue to need psychiatric medication? Stop for reevaluation. What's the point in reevaluating? You've already, you've already got to addict. The person's hooked on it, even if they don't need it, even if it's not helping them. They're hooked. They can't stop. Okay, this is the morning report. So rather than say the obvious, which is don't get your patients started on these drugs, they move to the nonsensical, which is we'll reevaluate periodically. How periodic? The standard of care is you see these patients back every three months. Well, by the time you're taking these things for three months, you are absolutely hooked. When I was practicing medicine in, um, well, this was 1994, I would literally put these patients on, I, I didn't know any better, on these SSRIs. I would see them back after a week to see if it was working. If it was not working, I would stop it. Um, and if, they, if it was working, they seemed to like it at the end of the week, all right, we'll see you back in a month. If it was still helping them, then we'd see them back in two months. Um, in my medical practice, these were definitely short-term medications. People did not stay on these medications for um, much more than, say, eight weeks, anywhere from uh, one week to eight weeks. And the idea of turning a patient into an addict, I mean, I find that totally uh, unacceptable. But here they're saying, don't worry about it. Um, just evaluate the patients. Don't continue to use these drugs. Now, here's the other thing they said. Now, everyone knows African Americans, black people are discriminated against. They face a lot of stress. So why wouldn't they be using as much or even better or more antidepressants and psychiatric drugs, right? Because they got more stress. I mean, they told me that in medical school, that blacks have more stress. I said, okay, I'll believe it. I mean, it's, you know, the experts have spoken. So why is it then that the use in white patients is twice the use in blacks or Hispanics and four times the use reported by Asians? It's not that white patients have more stress and more depression. How can that be? You know, it, 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 it makes no sense. So the prescription of these things to white patients is, is arbitrary. It, it's arbitrary 
because maybe white patients have better insurance that pays for the drugs. Maybe they are referred more often to psychiatrists for mild or stress-related um, events, whereas maybe uh, in terms of a cultural difference, someone who's Asian or someone who's Hispanic or someone who's black might just shrug their shoulders and say, you know what, sometimes things don't work out. So the fact that the youth is so much higher along racial lines indicates that the use of these drugs, period, is simply a cultural practice. That's all it is. The other hint is that the use in the United States is higher than other parts in the world. Again, this is a cultural practice. It has nothing to do with a person's actual medical condition. Okay, so we've given the doctors enough information to figure out that the use of these psychiatric drugs does not have a basis in physiological scientific fact. That it is simply a cultural practice. And so do we say to doctors, hey, this is not a good cultural practice. Let's just not get started with these drugs in the first place? No. So start your patient on these drugs, get them hooked, but just make sure you evaluate them from time to time. Again, the morning report. And... Um, <laughs> Okay, so patient outcomes uh, compared to male and female physicians. There is new evidence that patient outcomes are better with female physicians than with their male counterparts. Very interesting. Why would this be? Let's see what they say, and I'll tell you what I think. After analyzing data from over 1.5 million Medicare patients hospitalized over three years, researchers working with the Harvard School of Public Health, I went to Harvard undergraduate, I know where that is, they found lower death rates and readmission rates across all medical conditions for patients under the care of female physicians. Now, if you're in charge of the medical industrial complex, you realize this has got to change, these female physicians need to be re-educated, because the Inspector General found that 180,000 Medicare patients were being killed in the year of, I think it was 2012. There were no investigations. There were no arrests. There weren't even hospitals suspended from the Medicare program because of their death rates. Nothing was done. So obviously, they're just keeping score. Obviously, they're in favor of killing these Medicare patients or people and so a study like this showing that the patients of female physicians tend to live longer is an indication that female doctors apparently need to be re-educated. Okay. Investigators write that these results validate earlier findings that techniques typically used more by women, including patient-centered communication, longer visits, and use of encouragement and reassurance are associated with better outcomes. The results also challenge concerns that the quality of care by female physicians may be compromised by their desire to balance work and family responsibilities. These same arguments have also been used to justify the disparity between male and female doctors when it comes to pay and professional advancement. Perhaps the increased focus on pay for performance will reward women for the better treatment outcomes. Huh. It depends on what the performance measures and outcomes are. I think patient longevity might not be one of them. But I think the reason that women have better outcomes is because many patients, male and female, feel much better or more comfortable challenging a female and saying, hey, I'm not going to take that drug. We're not accepting an authoritative posture. And women physicians, because of their um, cultural background of just being female, are more likely to give in and yield. So in other words, when you have a female doctor, the probability of the standard of care being followed is less. That female doctor is willing to say to the patient, you know what, okay, if you don't want to do that, then maybe we could start at half the dose. Or, you know, maybe we could just wait and see and um, see you back in, in a month and see if maybe we still need the drug. Usually, of course, the drug is not necessary because the body took care of the, whatever the problem was. So, Patient outcomes, female and male physicians, you would think, you would think that if you found this 
case, what would you do? Well, you'd tell the male physicians to stay home, right? Give them all administrative jobs and put the women physicians in clinical positions. No, 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 no. Instead, just the opposite. And this is one thing to really um, point out that a lot of this reporting of adverse events and adverse outcomes is really simply a scorecard to let the people who are, who are making the policies, who are in charge, let them know that things are moving along very nicely, people are dying um, uh, as expected. And so that's what we have going on here. So obviously, if you're a patient reading the morning report, you would see that there's no way your doctor should be prescribing a psychiatric drug for you, such an antidepressant or a tranquilizer. It just doesn't make any sense because if the use in Asians is one-fourth that of the use in whites, and Asians don't seem to be any worse off for it. You know, Asians aren't doing any crazy, bizarre things then maybe at least 75% of the whites don't need these drugs either. And maybe, take it a step further, nobody needs these drugs. Again, the morning report. Patient outcomes, again, if you have to see a doctor, see a female doctor. At least she'll take no for an answer. Okay. So now here, we've, we've shown, again, this is the pattern here, one, two, three. One, Doctors are harming people by too much psychiatric drugs that they're prescribing. Two, uh, female physicians, uh, their patients live longer and do much better just because the female physicians tend to accept no for an answer and allow patients to deviate from the standard of care. All right. So now what they're saying, number three, is even though we've established that doctors are dangerous, even though we've established what they're doing is harmful, let's encourage them to do more. How so? And finally, your patient's high tolerance to pain could mask his or her ability to recognize symptoms of a heart attack. Norwegian researchers made the connection when exploring why symptoms of heart attacks are easy to recognize in some patients, but not as easy in others. study included 5,000 patients who got cold presser testing, which is when you keep your hand in freezing water as long as possible for up to two minutes. The participants with a previously unrecognized heart attack were able to endure the cold much longer than those with a known heart attack. This association was particularly notable in women. They were almost 50% less likely to abort the test if they had a history of an unrecognized heart attack. Now, unrecognized heart attack means the heart attack was unrecognized at the time, means the medical industrial complex did not have the chance to intervene and reap anywhere from $20,000 to $100,000 in profit, and of course, a woman's heart attack was unrecognized and um, she did just fine, and the medical industrial complex failed to collect the $100,000 heart attack tax. So what do they say? Absence of complaints of chest pain should not keep us from suspecting heart disease. Well, if a person's not having chest pain, how do you suspect heart disease? How do you suspect a heart attack? When evaluating patients without a significant heart history, particularly in this situation of symptoms, such as shortness of breath, or peripheral swelling, it's important to consider the possibility of a silent heart attack resulting in heart failure. So now we have to imagine a disease that the patient is not complaining of. And so uh, what they are saying, though, if someone is short short of breath or has swollen uh, feet, consider that maybe they have a heart attack causing it, even though the person doesn't complain of the heart attack. Now, the fact that these ladies' heart attacks went untreated obviously was irrelevant because they survived, they're alive, they did well. So, um, again, we have a uh, treatment looking for a disease or looking for an expanded use. But the morning report does not uh, stop there. <laughs> so doctors are uh, so we're trained this is thing called weight loss a lot of people want to lose weight and so we doctors are told in medical school that patients should consult with us to lose weight even though there's no evidence that the weight loss counseling or programs that doctors offer are in any way effective 
Um, even this weight loss surgery is effective uh, temporarily. So let's see. It says, if your weight loss patients complain that their appetite grows as their waistline shrinks, they are probably right. Probably right? Why would they lie? Why would they lie? A study presented at Obesity Week found just that. 52-week placebo-controlled trial included 153 patients with diabetes treated with a particular drug. This drug lowers blood sugar by causing excretion of glucose in the urine, which results in weight loss. But for every kilogram loss, patients consumed an extra 100 calories a day. Previous research has shown that metabolism slows when patients lose weight, but these new results quantify the feedback loop between energy intake driven by an increase in appetite and expenditure. This may explain why so many patients who are trying to lose weight experience weight plateaus and weight regain. The study reinforces that we need more effective appetite control strategies. The increased appetite is real and makes it hard to maintain weight loss. Okay. So what they're saying then is they're getting these type 2 diabetic patients to lose weight by increasing the amount of sugar, calories if you will, that come out in the urine. This actually is pretty rough on the kidneys. Doesn't sound like a good idea to me. So these patients, every time they lose uh, a, a little bit of weight, they eat a whole lot more. And then what happens, of course, is the drug is not effective because the people just simply eat more and more and more. And we doctors have been told that people lose weight and their appetite uh, goes away. That's uh, not true. So, of course, the answer is, how do you suppress the appetite? And, of course, the um, answer here is to get more drugs. We need more effective appetite control strategies slash drugs. And uh, for those of you who are into turpentine and have availed yourself of turpentine, um, you'll know that turpentine, uh, when it kills the parasites that are causing your um, craving for sugar, uh, that helps you lose weight and not have the cravings. And that report is available at vitalitycapsules.com. You can go to vitalitycapsules.com, get your free report, and read all about that. But, of course, that's not mentioned here. All right, treating gout. The controversy continues. This is important. So what does that mean, the controversy continues? That means there is no agreement. There is not agreement among doctors on this simple case or condition called gout. This is an important thing to understand. Now, when, they, when doctors talk to you, the patient, there's this sense of authority, this sense of certainty. The controversy continues, which means there's not agreement. Or, put more bluntly, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Excuse the expression. All right, so let's see what the morning report says. New guidelines. That means they've changed their mind again. From the American College of Physicians for the Treatment of Gout, are garnering some major criticism. Previous guidelines, including those from the American College of Rheumatology, that's the arthritis people, or specialists, recommend routine monitoring of serum uric acid levels. However, the American College of Physicians argues that evidence for routine monitoring is unclear, pointing out that patients with higher serum urate levels may still be asymptomatic, and some may even have acute flares, such as gout attacks, below the threshold. The American College of Physicians points to a lack of evidence that the outcomes are better when treating to one serum uric acid level versus another. So what they're saying is, why should we test and screen this for this particular item in the blood when controlling this level in the absence of symptoms is not beneficial? It's not helpful, why measure it? That sounds, makes sense to you, right? Ah, you didn't go to medical school, did you? Ha, ha, ha. So uh, screening is a, a major industry. Okay, so they recommend managing gout with drug therapies that include urate-lowering and anti-inflammatory medications. So you treat the pain and you lower the uric acid. Okay, gotcha. They also state that long-term uric acid-lowering therapy should not be started after a first gout attack or in patients with two or fewer attacks per year. 
just for your information, of course, these drugs that are used to prevent attacks are themselves dangerous and deadly and do cause excess death. So what they're saying is if a person's only going to have two gut attacks a year, that's not worth the risk of death. There are experts who disagree. They believe these guidelines view gout as an intermittent acute disease rather than as a progressive chronic condition requiring regular care. Yeah, that's a major difference in view for sure. This major disagreement in the basic long-term management of gout leaves us wondering what indeed is best for the patient with gout. Stay tuned. All right. So let me just tell you, I went to medical school 1979 to 83. We don't need to get into all the math, but that was a long time ago. You would think that by now they would have had some kind of long-term study that would have established what would be the better way to go over a 20-year period. It's not like the drugs for gout have made incredible progress in the last 20-year period. So the question would be, why has this not been looked at? And so what we have then is we have a condition called gout, common arthritis condition, and the doctors really don't know what to do about it. They have, they have no clue. So what does this mean for you? It means that your opinion about how to treat gout is just about as good as your doctor's opinion. Yep. Again, why make the appointment? Why buy the insurance? Okay. (laughs) Okay. This is very interesting. Prevalence of immunosuppression. And finally, number, the number of Americans with compromised immune systems appears to be growing. And this has very real implications for the ability to stop the spread of disease. A new analysis from the 2013 National Health Interview Survey was presented at Infectious Disease Week 2016. It found that 4% of United States adults reported being told by their doctors at some point in their, that their immune systems were weakened. Almost 3% of those asked reported current immunosuppression. The survey population included people living with AIDS, those who had undergone a transplant, those with autoimmune conditions, and individuals who are immunocompromised because of medications like steroids. Rates were higher in whites, women, and those 60 years of age. I'm sorry, and in those 50 to 59 years of age. So what disease affects people who are white, female, and 50 to 59 years of age? What disease would these people have in common? Answer, health insurance. Yeah, health insurance. People 50 to 59 years old are working and insured. Yep. And more likely to use their insurance. So they're saying this should be a wake-up call to all of us about this unrecognized phenomenon. These patients are at risk for opportunistic infections as well as reactivation of chronic infections. And they may be unable to receive, get this, certain routine vaccines. Okay, so let's go back over this. So immunosuppression is wide range. So who has this? AIDS. People, AIDS people are taking AIDS drugs that suppress their immune system even more. People have a trans, so they're getting drugs from their doctor that suppress their immune system. Gotcha. People undergone a transplant getting drugs from their doctor to suppress their immune system. Okay, gotcha. Those with autoimmune conditions. Autoimmune conditions are a complication of vaccines. Look it up. Read your, read your vaccination uh, insert. And individuals who are immunocompromised because of medications like steroids. Okay. So all of these immunosuppressive states are iatrogenic. And so this person doing the morning report says, this should be a wake-up call to all of us, that's us being doctors, about this unrecognized phenomenon. These patients are at risk for infections. And so when you look at this, all of these autoimmune or immunocompromised states are doctor-created. Again, why is anyone buying health insurance? Why is anyone seeing doctors? Probably because they have not read the morning report. 
<laughs> okay. There are a lot of questions popping up in the chat room. Let's see. We have time for one more morning report. <laughs> All right. So we don't have time for another morning report. Let's go take a look at the uh, the questions in the chat room. As I can see, there's a lot of uh, uh, well-meaning uh, lack of comprehension. Okay. All right. Let's go to question answer. But before we do, a word from our sponsor, Vitality Capsules. Please visit vitalitycapsules.com and get your report of the Candida Cleaner, which teaches you how you can achieve better health and heal yourself with turpentine. Yes, the remedy of our forefathers, grandparents, great-grandparents, depending on your age, uh, use turpentine to cure just about everything. And so uh, mosey on over to VitalityCapsules.com and pick up your report. Also, in two weeks, yay, two weeks, I will be starting a uh, one-week program in Panama where I teach people to become healers, to be the healers in their home, to heal themselves, or some people prefer to heal commercially and make a living at it. Either way, um, the therapies you will learn about are therapies I developed that were superior to what I learned in medical school. Disclaimer, uh, I don't even know what to say for a disclaimer, except that uh, obviously any decision you make is your own responsibility. Uh, and of course, that's, that is just so obvious. All right, what do we got here? Questions. Dr. Daniels, I remember hearing people with gout getting teased. What's up with that? Someone would complain about pain and you'd hear, ha, 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 probably got the gout. What's up with that? What's up with that is um, 30 years ago, let's see, I'm 60, so yeah, no, even more, 50 years ago, it was well known, it was well understood that gout was caused by eating excessive meats and fats. And so if anyone had the gout, it was because of what they were eating. And so you just laugh at like, you're so stupid. Why are you eating that stuff that causes the gout? And that, that is why they laughed at people who got the gout. Because they know, man, you're giving it to yourself. And so back then, 50 years ago, it was considered reasonable to take personal responsibility. Like, man, you know, you got the gout because you're eating this crap and you're still eating it. And then you're complaining about pain. You're stupid. So that's why back then um, people who had the gout did not receive much sympathy. Okay. Okay, so let's uh, we have some questions here on the line. Your name and your question. Hello? Okay, let's try another one. Hi, your name and your question? Hello, Doc. Am I on? Yes, you are. Oh, okay, great. I uh, wanted to find out just information on your radio station on Sunday, your radio show, so I can listen in on Sunday. I have no clue. But the name is just of the station is, is RBN, Republic Broadcasting Network. It says RBN is from 8 to 10 p.m. on uh, Eastern Standard Time. And they call me. I pick up the phone and talk, so I really have no idea how to listen. But if you go to VitalityCapsules.com, sign up for the free report, you'll be on the list. And my assistant sends out information, um, emails to people, letting them know how to listen to the Sunday show. Okay. Well, one more question, Doc. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as circulation is concerned, uh, you did mention, mm-hmm. uh, as far as um, uh, the circulation, you did mention uh, that milk thistle was very helpful. Uh, that I'm oh, the yeah. gentleman who had the stroke. Uh, is, mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't get the information in regards to circulation because I'm still dealing with numbness. Ah, so um, milk thistle helps clean the blood so the blood is not as thick. So then it's thinner and it circulates to more of your body. To stimulate actual circulation, things like um, cayenne, turmeric, ginger, those are three really good ones. Oh, garlic as well. All of those help circulation. Um, Ginkgo is another one, vitamin C. So these are all uh, 
blood, very powerful blood thinners. So what I would recommend is starting with one of them, and then you can add another one uh, if you want to or if you feel you need it. Using all one, two, three, four, five, six, all, all of these together would not be safe. So what you do is pick the one of your choice, one that's either easy for you to take or that you find tasteful, tastier that you can use daily, and then you can titrate it up to what you need. All right. Sounds like a winner. Thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. So one question would be, well, how do you know that you've titrated up high enough? Answer, you'll bruise easily. Just take your index finger, press it on your skin, lift up, and if you've got a bruise, ooh, time to cut back. All righty, let's see. Uh, all right, great. Okay, what's a good castor oil? Okay, now to be honest, what's a good castor oil? Um, any castor oil that's hexane-free, H-E-X-A-N-E, hexane-free. That means without hexane. Uh, the importance of that is that hexane actually causes cancer. So you don't want to start putting cancer-causing chemicals on your skin when you're trying to heal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So the is, how dangerous are the conditions for which proton pump inhibitors are being prescribed? Answer is uh, they are uniformly harmless. Um they are prescribed for digestive disorders, um, indigestion, heartburn, um, gastritis. Um, all of these conditions can be treated with um, switching your beverages to water, taking herbs like um, fennel seed, cumin, um, coriander, cardamom. So there is no reason to take these drugs because the conditions they treat are not deadly, and these drugs are deadly. Mm. <laughs> okay. Dr. Downs, what symptoms are indicative of the need to cleanse the liver? Pretty much any symptom, to be honest. So no matter what symptom you have, if you have any kind of symptom or discomfort, uh, cleaning the liver would be a great step to um, resolve the problem, number one, and two, prevent it from co- coming back again. Now, the other problem is a lot of people like to cleanse the liver, but the problem with cleansing the liver is the liver discharges its waste via the bile ducts into the small intestine. The small intestine discharges its waste into the colon. The colon discharges its waste into the toilet. So obviously, if the colon is blocked, you can't possibly clean the liver. If the small intestine is blocked, you can't possibly clean the liver. And if the bile ducts are blocked, you can't possibly clean the liver. And so um, any symptom you have, it's a symptom that there's a blockage in, in that pathway, liver, gallbladder, small intestine, large intestine. And um, this is what caused me to develop vitality capsules because I would get people's symptoms improved and then the symptoms would just come right back or you know, the, the, the healing wasn't really long-lasting. But I found that when they took vitality capsules and kept that pathway clear, things were a lot better off. Is there a homeopathic cure for arthritis in the hands? I'm not sure what the question is, uh, but if you want to cure arthritis in your hands, uh, first step is to keep your hands warmer. Second step is it's in your food. So you're eating or drinking something that's causing that arthritis in your hands. When you stop eating or drinking that, it'll clear up very nicely. Is herpes curable? Um, That's an odd question. Everybody has herpes. Herpes live inside the human body. The question is, can you stop outbreaks? Yes. Um, as far as getting rid of uh, the herpes, that's not a reasonable objective. It's like getting rid of, you know, the human condition or something. All right. We are at the end of our time. I'm sorry I can't answer all these questions. But um, thank you very much for listening. And as always, think happens.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.